Would you take your Bible and turn to Psalm 119? begin at verse 73 down through verse 80. Psalm 119, verse 73. We began looking at this last week, but we'll read through it all, review a little bit, and then hopefully conclude this stanza tonight. Verse 73 David says, your hands made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. May those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. O may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word to your servant. May your compassion come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. May the arrogant be ashamed, for they subvert me with a lie, but I shall meditate on your precepts. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, so that I will not be ashamed. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I titled this section, A Portrait of Faith in Affliction. And uh, as I was thinking about this portion of the psalm, this is really, as his prayers are answered, he is experiencing grace, and then he's helping others. So what does faith look like in affliction? Sometimes people turn inward and focus only on themselves, but you don't see that in verses 70 through 80, 73 through 80. You actually see his desire for fellowship. Look at verse 74. May those who fear you see me and be glad. And then verse 79. May those who fear you turn to me. And uh, that verse is translated in a couple of different ways. It could be translated so that they may know your testimonies. But you can see he's concerned not only for himself, but also for those who are around him. And he is going through affliction. You can see that from the previous stanza. He talks about before he was afflicted, he went astray. And verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted. And then Verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous that, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. And some of that affliction could very well be what he describes in verse 78, and that is the sins of others against him. As he talks about the arrogant who are wronging him or subverting him with a lie. And so this is affliction that he's dealing with, but he's dealing it with it by faith. He's seeking the Lord's help, and he wants to be a blessing to others. We looked at verse 73 as he confessed his creator, 
desired to follow the direction and instruction that God gave to him. And again, if it's in the context of affliction, God, of course, knows. And God, who has given us his word, can help us through affliction. And so his prayer, as he confesses to his creator that he knew him intimately, making him and forming him or fashioning him, founding him, you might say, establishing him and his being, he wants to know what God has commanded. There's a submission to his authority when he says that I may learn your commandments. When he refers to God's word that way, it's an indication that he is wanting to follow it. He wants to learn it, wants to obey it. And then verse 74, as he asks that he might be an encouragement to others, it is on the basis of certainly his obedience to God's commands, verse 73, but also his continued trust in, his hope in God's word. The word wait in verse 74 is that word that indicates hope. He's hoping for God's word, trusting in God's word, and hoping that on the basis of his life, others would see and be encouraged, rejoice that he is following and obeying, even, even in a time of affliction. That's a hard time to obey. But every time is the right time to obey when you're going through affliction or when you're going through good times. If God is God, he's always to be obeyed. And it's especially in times of affliction where people see and observe and if you're continuing to be faithful in the midst of affliction, that is a testimony. It's a cause for rejoicing, especially if someone else is going through affliction and they see your life. I know I have been encouraged as I've seen people be faithful through affliction, whether some trial or difficulty, but they just have not ceased in their trust in the Lord. They've continued to believe God's word. Not that there wasn't a struggle or a challenge. Of course, there always is. That's what a trial is. But it's a wonderful thing to see someone clinging to the Lord when they're going through difficulty. And part of that trust in the Lord is a belief, confidence in his righteous judgments. Verse 75, he says, I know... O oh Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Now you could look at verse 75, especially the first part of the verse, and say, is this a broad and general statement? And surely it is, because whether it's his judgments in my life or his judgments in all of creation, everything that God does, he is righteous. He always does what's right. The judgments that he makes, the decisions that he hands down, the wrath that he pours out, or the blessing that he gives, all of that is coming from the all-wise, perfectly righteous God. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right, Abraham asked? Of course he will. And he did, even in that circumstance, as Abraham was praying for the rescue of Lot. 
He was actually praying for the rescue of the city if there was 10 righteous in it. And he argued that God would not destroy the righteous with the wicked. Will he? And the Lord, in responding to Abraham, of course, responded, even if there was 10 righteous within the city, that he would not destroy the city. But there weren't 10. But God still didn't sweep the righteous away with the wicked. He went and took through his angels who went into the city. He pulled Lot and his family out. And though his wife turned into a pillar of salt, Lot and his daughters came out of the city, and that was God's righteousness. It was a demonstration of his righteousness. And New Testament calls him righteous Lot, which is, in view of what we know of his life, sometimes difficult to to see that there was righteousness there, but that's what Scripture says. And so there's, in some measure, he had faith in the Lord. But God was righteous. Again, you could look at one specific instance or many instances, and you may not understand how righteous he is as he does what he does, but he's always righteous. The psalmist confesses, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous, but what about when it comes to me and my life and my circumstances and things that have fallen out in my lot? What about my trials? What about my afflictions? Is this really God's righteous dealings with me? Well, this is the confidence of David here. He says, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So it really is, while it could be applied broadly, David is applying it very specifically to his own life. And he's saying that God has not made a mistake as he has acted and brought circumstances and difficulty into his life. He has done so for a good and right and wise reason. God never acts with incomplete knowledge or misguided purposes. Psalm 19, verse 9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether, and that's not something to be applied only broadly, but very specifically about me. And so... Really, it's verse 75 that gets more specific, or the end of verse 75 that gets more specific. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. This is a demonstration of his faithfulness that I'm going through what I'm going through. Now, we could honestly look at our lives and say, what do we deserve in light of what Scripture teaches? What do you deserve? What do you deserve? Do you deserve good things? I think about that question, I tend to think of a circumstance where my former uh, supervisor in a job that I had was counseling someone and he had a relationship that he, he was having trouble with. And he, he was saying to my supervisor, he says, I just don't deserve this. 
we all deserve. If we look at the pages of Scripture, we recognize our sin and our transgression against God's law. What do we deserve? We deserve a hot place in hell that burns forever. And if God has brought affliction into our lives, and he is doing something good through that, if he is by it teaching us his statutes, as it says back in verse 71, if it is helping us from going astray, verse 67, and bringing us back to obedience or even initially to faith, God is doing good things through affliction. It may be painful. It may be hard to endure. But praise the Lord that that affliction if we respond rightly to it, drives us to him to exercise faith. Thomas Brooks said, it's mercy that our affliction is not execution, but a correction. He who has deserved hanging may be glad if he escapes with a whipping. God's corrections are our instructions. His lashes are lessons. His scourges are schoolmasters. His chastisements are admonitions. And then he points out the fact that both the Hebrews and the Greeks use the same word for chastening and teaching. Chastening and teaching. Musar in Hebrew, Paideia in Greek. What is God doing? He's teaching us something. But are we learning? And do we think of it in these terms? That in your faithfulness or in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse 4, heading in my Bible in this section is a father's discipline. Verse 4 says, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which you all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of human fathers, it says they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And that phrase, so that we may share his holiness, is a part of what we need to recognize is God's purpose in our lives. God's purpose for you and me is holiness. I do believe when we're 
holy, that we'll be happy, truly happy, but his purpose is not to make us happy in our sin. It's to make us holy. And sometimes we are happy, aren't we, in our sin? We're content in our sin, and God is not content when we are sinning. So when we sin, and when we're living in sin, he brings affliction and discipline, and that produces holiness. That's his goal for us. Verse 11 says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what God is doing in our lives. Holiness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Righteousness is obedience to God's commandments. And so he says, therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification with, without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. Now, sometimes people interpret this verse as having to do with bitterness. It does mention bitterness, but it's really talking about a person that is not believing. Notice the next verse in explanation, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau. No fleshly person, no person who's living life according to the flesh among you. Because that, the presence of that person who is unbelieving, living sinfully, can cause destruction, can actually lead to the harm of other people. So if you turn back to Psalm 19, could you say this concerning your life? And you look at David's life and you have to say, David was afflicted in many, many ways. In his relationships, with his employer, the king, those surrounding the king. Just follow David's life and look at all the affliction that he went through. Even his sons, after he disobeyed the Lord and the Lord brought the consequences for his sin back to him through the life of his children. Absalom, Amnon, Adonijah, lost a son. And David's not being specific here. He's not telling us which affliction specifically later in the section, there's the lie or lies that are being told about him, but he does confess here that God is righteous in what he does, and even in the affliction that comes his way. I think if we're honest, we need affliction. It's a gift. We don't like to experience it, but when it drives us to God, when it turns us from sin, when it helps us to pray, when it points us to his word, to rely upon his word, 
All those are good things. So then you're in affliction, and how do you survive? How do you survive? And just look at what he's doing in affliction. I just want to encourage us to be reminded as we look through this whole psalm, he's praying. Are you praying through affliction? He's praying through affliction. And he's asking God for things that God is and God does. And realize God is never doing these things because we're perfect or sinless. This is just who God is and what he does for his people in spite of their sin. In other words, if you pray, as David does in verse 76 and 77, for God's loving kindness to comfort you, for his compassion to come to you, you're never going to be praying that in a sinless condition. It's not on the basis of your sinlessness that you would experience those things. So he's asking for comfort in affliction, the difficulty that he's facing. (laughs) Charles Bridges noted that in verse 76, while he has just confessed the righteousness of God's judgments in faithfulness afflicting him, he does not say, oh, may you remove this affliction. That's not what he asks. Now, you remember Paul did ask that when he he was afflicted by the thorn in the flesh, and God said repeatedly, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Bridges says he does not beseech the Lord that it might depart from him like Paul did. No, his repeated acknowledgments of the supports given under it, that is under affliction, and the benefits he had derived from it had reconciled him to commit its measure and continuance to the Lord. So whatever the extent is of this affliction, God has measured it. And as he has measured it, he has done it rightly. If you want to think in terms of the discipline of a parent, or in my case, if you remember the story of the principal, how many, how many swats? There was a measurement for truancy. And I can tell you, at least at my school, it was five. And it hurt. And I was reminded. But I'm just talking about the God, the measure of that affliction. How long should it be? How long should it continue? Bridges goes on to say all that he needs, all that David needs, or all that he asks for, is a sense of his merciful kindness upon his soul. That's what he wants to know. In the midst of this affliction, he wants to know God's loving kindness, his steadfast love. And I think you could say, even on the basis of the affliction itself, God is doing that. His steadfast love brings the affliction. Now, it's not to say that he won't bring encouragement or relief. Because I think that's really what he's talking about in the next verse, compassion. And let me just 
continue with verse 76, we'll look at verse 77. But when he says, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me, may it console me. This is the idea of giving comfort to his heart in the midst of the circumstances on the basis of God demonstrating his steadfast love. And there was at some point in David's life, he understood from a promise of God that God would show him his loving kindness. Now, I don't, I don't know. And I tried to trace uh, in David's own life, if there was a time where God specifically promised this, but you can see it all over the Psalms where David is appealing to God's loving kindness, where he's talking about his loving kindness. When Psalm 23 says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It's really surely goodness and chesed, loving kindness, steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. So David was confident in the loving kindness of the Lord. And even in this circumstance, he wanted to see that this this was a part of God's loving kindness to him, this affliction. He did say in Psalm 18, verse 49, Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives deliverance, great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Now, I'm not into imagining and placing weight upon my imagination when it comes to God's word, but you can see as Samuel is anointing David, giving a word of blessing upon this young man as he is going to lead the nation. And eventually you find in the covenant that God made with David, promise of God's loving kindness to David's descendants. When God chose David, he chose David forever as the beginning of the line of the Messiah, eventually the Messiah would come and experience the sure mercies of David. But David here is saying, oh, may your loving kindness comfort me according to your word. God had promised it, and David wants to experience it. He wants to be consoled by it, to know that God is showing him his steadfast love. Look at verse 77. May your compassion come to me, that I may live. So you're going through affliction. You recognize God is right to do this in your life, but you're not without his comfort and his help, his loving kindness, his steadfast love, and the assurance of that. And you're also not beyond the scope of God's compassion. Compassion is that aspect of God's love. If you think about God's love, the many expressions of it, compassion is when he sees us in our misery and he responds to us in our misery with relief from that. Now, I think it's it's interesting how he concludes this verse because as he concludes the verse, we see whose side David is on. We already know what side he's on, but he's saying it outright. Look at what he says, verse 77. May your compassion come to me that I may live. Why? For your law is my delight. Sometimes what we want in our lives is God's compassion to come to me that we might live, but his law is not our delight. 
And we're not so concerned with obedience. We just want relief. God is interested in relieving misery, but he's not going to leave you happy in your sin. And it is something when you're in the midst of affliction and you're praying to God for his compassion and your heart has been brought to the point by his discipline that you say, Lord, I want to do your will. I want to do what pleases you. I want to obey you. I delight in your word. Praise the Lord. God is a God of compassion. He responds. God is not unaffected by emotion, but when he shows emotion, he shows it perfectly. One writer said, in his systematic theology of the Christian faith, his name's Robert Raymond. He said, the God of Scripture is constantly acting into and reacting to the human condition. In no sense is he metaphysically insulated or detached from, unconcerned with, or insensitive or indifferent to the condition of fallen men. Everywhere, he is depicted both as one who registers grief and sorrow over his displeasure and wrath against sin and its ruinous effects, and as the one who in compassion and love has taken effective steps in Jesus Christ to reverse the misery of men. Everywhere, he's portrayed as one who can and does enter into deep, authentic, interpersonal relations of love with his creatures, and as a God who truly cares for his creatures and their happiness. See, God is concerned about your happiness but he's concerned about your holiness because he is holy and you and I are to be holy. He's not going to countenance sin in our lives. If he's making us like him as his children, that is what he's going to insist upon. And as a good father, he does that. And if we delight in his word, we cry out to him, we want to do what he says, and we look to him and he sees and hears us, he's going to respond with compassion. Because he is a God of compassion. Better than any systematic theology statement is Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Just imagine if he did in your life or mine, if he really rewarded you, gave you what you deserve. Praise the Lord he doesn't, that he does show compassion. Psalm 103 goes on to say, for as the high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he's mindful that we are but dust. The Lord has compassion on his own, just like a father has compassion on his kids. So when his servants are in a prison, 
he can give them a song. When they're being afflicted in the lion's den, he can shut the lion's mouth. When they're put into the fiery furnace, he can preserve them through that. He can help a servant who is despairing and downhearted and thinks he's all alone by simply giving him sleep beside a tree, waking him up from time to time to give him a jar of water and some food. Go back to sleep, Elijah. When he wakes up, there's more. And it's hot, ready for him. God cares about his children. Even when they're in affliction, even when in those cases, they were not necessarily the cause, although they were sinners. But even when we're the cause of our own affliction, when we come to the place where we say, your law is my delight, Lord, have compassion on me. God will hear that prayer. It's not because we deserve his compassion either but he does hear our cry. Let's think about briefly the focus that we ought to have in affliction, verse 78. How do you keep a right focus? Well, if your affliction is that someone, as David experienced, is proud and lying about you, his prayer is that they would become ashamed of that that they would recognize the wrong of that and the sin of that, and that they would be brought to the place where they recognize how sinful it is to do what they're doing. You can pray that about someone who's lying about you. David is praying that these arrogant liars who were wronging him would be ashamed of their actions And he was determined, and this is his resolution in the end of the verse, not to meditate on what they said, but upon God's words. Notice he says, I shall meditate on your precepts. He could have meditated on what Saul or his men were saying about him. He could have meditated on what Doeg was saying about him. He could have meditated on what Ahithophel or Shimei or any of his enemies were saying about him, but instead he meditates on God's word. And it's actually God's word that is helping him to obey in the midst of that affliction. See, that's what's difficult. Is when we get sinned against, it's very easy to sin back in the very same way. You're being mistreated with words, and now you want to mistreat someone else, but instead, as you meditate on God's precepts and you seek to do what is right, you're being helped by the Lord, and you're keeping your focus on what is pleasing to Him. Lies aren't true. Look at verse 79. He does want to be a help to others. Not only does he want to keep a right focus, but he's also seeking to be a help and an example to others in affliction. May those who fear you turn to me, even those who know your testimonies. There are two descriptions here of these individuals that he wants to be a help to. They fear God. They know God's testimonies. Spurgeon said they are God-fearing 
and they're God-knowing. They possess both devotion to God and instruction. They both have the spirit and the knowledge, he says, of true faith. And Spurgeon says, we know of some believers who are gracious but not intelligent. On the other hand, we know certain professors of Christianity who have all head knowledge and no heart conviction. David, however, is a man who combines devotion and intelligence with intelligence. <laughs> I like what he said. We want neither devout dunces nor intellectual icebergs. We want to be encouragement to those who know and love the Lord. It could be here that David wants to be an example to them. It could be that he desires to be in fellowship with them. In the very least, it suggests he wants to speak with them and be with them and have a good relationship with them. And it very well could be that translation that has, so that they may know your testimonies, is that they would learn more about God through his life. They fear God. They must know him and have a relationship with him, but they would learn more about God's testimonies if they saw someone in affliction obeying God, trusting God, praying to God, doing what is right. Do you know anybody like that? Going through affliction? Like Job? Maybe you don't know anyone like Job. I don't really know anyone like Job, but somebody who's going through affliction but just will not give up. Won't give up. It's like the frog in the throat of that stork. Have you seen that cartoon? I think it's never give up at the bottom of it, and the frog is in the stork's mouth. You can't see his head. All you can see is his arms, legs, whatever. He's grabbing on the stork's throat. He won't give up. Really what we're talking about when it comes in, and to be serious is persevering faith that, that trusts God even in the midst of affliction. Though he slay me, Job said, yet I will trust him. God is trustworthy no matter what he sends my way. Let's look quickly at verse 80. He is praying, lastly, for a heart of a integrity in his affliction. May my heart be blameless in your statutes so that I will not be ashamed. The cause for shame would be if he was not a man of integrity. If in the midst of affliction, he faltered and failed and disobeyed, dishonored the Lord. But his desire is to have a heart that is devoted and, obedience to God, and obedient to God's statutes, even in the midst of this affliction. And he recognizes, and here we all need to recognize this, he's not capable of it. I'm not capable of it. You're not capable of it in and of yourself. You need the Lord's help. And so as he prays, may my heart be blameless. May I have a heart of integrity in God's statutes. May I continue to obey in the midst of affliction, 
I like the way one person put it. He's praying that the impact of his life would not be a fraud exposed, but a believer revealed. Not a fraud exposed, but a believer revealed. Sometimes when people go through affliction and difficulty, it shows what they really are. And if you're a believer trusting in the Lord, we want certainly to honor the Lord. We want to be a person of integrity. I think Joseph is an example of someone who went through affliction and remained faithful. He remained obedient. And in the end, he recognized God's greater purpose for him and for the people of God. I know that you meant this evil, he said to his brothers, but God meant it for good. A greater example is Christ himself, who is Psalm 22, the afflicted one, who remained faithful through all of the suffering that he went through. He was trustful even when betrayed by a treacherous disciple. And he called upon God while he was being crucified. Even when he didn't have the sense of that relationship he'd always enjoyed, he didn't use the word father for that prayer on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's feeling abandoned, but in the moment of his abandoned feeling, he's still crying out to God. He's praying while he's being persecuted and put to death. That's a heart of integrity. And that's not me. I, I, I couldn't do that. But with the Lord's help, I could. And you look at church history and you can see many examples of people who, with the Lord's help, stayed faithful to the Lord even while they're burning in the flames. They didn't disobey. They kept on trusting. Spurgeon repeats the story of a man whose every finger, he said, was a candle because he's burning in the flames. And he's saying, none but Christ, none but Christ. Wouldn't give up. Kept on believing, trusting, even though on earth he was suffering such affliction. May the Lord help us to pray that prayer and to find the grace in him, which it certainly is in him, to help us in time of affliction. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we bow and give you thanks, especially for our Savior and what he did for us. As with a perfect heart of integrity, he remained faithful. And we pray that in whatever affliction, some of it may be too personal to share with one another. But whatever affliction we have in our lives right now, help us, Lord, not to disobey you. Help us to recognize where we're sinning against you or sinning against someone else. And help us to be corrected, be teachable as you brought that discipline into our lives. Help us to be an encouragement to others, to bring joy to others as we remain steadfast and faithful to you as you're being faithful 
showing your steadfast love to us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to number 542.